Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to sports physiotherapist, researcher and injury consultant, Jordan Mendiguccia. Tuned in to episode 266 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, on the back of a very, very solid recommendation and reading some of his work, I have Jordan Mendiguccia on the podcast today. So, JB Marin, as I mentioned this episode, um, gave me a huge recommendation to get Jordan on the podcast. I did, definitely didn't disappoint. It ended up in a Sunday night, which I really appreciate Jordan coming on and giving up some of his Sunday night. Um, but it was the only time we could line up because he's a very, very busy man. So in this episode, we discuss Jordan's approach to hamstring rehab. And the thing that we should point out here, and this is definitely emphasized by JB, is that not only is Jordan a researcher, but he's out there in the field as a consultant, um, helping people um, with with their rehab and injury prevention. So also in this episode, we discuss Nordics, we discuss uh, sprint mechanics, and then some some uh, some chat on isometrics for hamstring injury prevention. So some of the topics that we've discussed in previous episodes with other guests, but a really nice um, take from Jordan on some of these topics. So he's a great guy speaks very very good english um and i know that anyone out there who's interested in this area will get tons and tons from this episode with jordan this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by hawking dynamics the world's first wireless force plate testing system so the hawking dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab so you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, I and mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from I Measure You is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So I Measure You have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Jordan Mendiguccia. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm going to try really, really hard. The most, the most um, scared, scared I've been in saying someone's name who's been on the podcast. So I want to make sure I get this right. So welcome to the podcast, Jordan Mendiguccia. Have I got that right? Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah, you did perfect. Yes. Rob, hi, how are you? Thank you very much. Thank you for giving up some of your Sunday, Jordan, to give to uh, to speak to me for this podcast. Okay, thanks but, for you. No, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, as you know, listen to a few podcasts. Do you want to give a bit of background on yourself, what you're currently doing, your education? Because I know you've got an interesting background in a bit of professional football as well, which is super cool. So just want to give us a bit of a background on you and then what you're currently doing at the minute. Okay, as you said perfectly, my name is Jordan Mendiguchia, and I was a football player coming to play for the national team under 18. 
And Rob, I comment this because uh, from this was born my great passion and curiosity about uh, physiotherapy. In addition to giving me a different perspective on the needs and weaknesses of applied physiotherapy in football, while still I was uh, in the uni. That curiosity led me to visit different world reference research center in search of a different of a different vision to what was done uh, in Spain at that time. And that really uh, does not convince me much uh, at that moment. Uh, I visit the Oslo Sport Trauma Research Center in Norway. I go to Cincinnati for a year with Tim Hewitt and his team. I visit to, uh, for a month, Stuart McKill, low-back uh, biomechanics, and visit Edith Cowan University with uh, Matt Brugali and Australian Institute of Sport. After that, I continue my formal uh, high degree education and I started to work in a high performance and research center used treating athletes and uh, started to be in contact with uh, uh, some basic research. What I'm currently doing is uh, use my my job or, or role is uh, director of Centrum Rehab and Performance Center, where I am dedicated in a daily basis to solving problems related to uh, football pathologies, such as hamstring, ACL, groin pain, ankle, and low back, especially in elite soccer players from all over Europe, as well as some NBA players, also uh, world-class elite sprinters, etc. Also, I work as a consultant from injury prevention site, implementing work systems, mainly for football teams. We're attending to UEFA injury surveys. We have pretty good results. And moreover, the thing is that we did in different uh, teams. That, uh, that means a lot for us. Uh, from the doubts that arise or emerge from my experiences as a player and from my daily practice with elite athletes and teams, Question emerged that make me choose research as a method to share them with people who also dedicate themselves mainly to clinical practice. Therefore, we will say that this is my part-time hobby. Without any conflict of interest or pressure for any institution, but that it keeps my mind awake and my feet on the ground, running away from both the commercial miracles that surround the clinical part of this wonderful profession, but also from for uh, the bubble of the academy being far from what is happening in daily practice or on the field. Superb. Thank you very much. Who, who did you play for when you played football, Jordan? Yeah, I started to play uh, from my city uh, team, the city where I was born, that is Osasuna in Pamplona, okay. Spain. And then I go to to Alaves in Vitoria, just near, one hour from my from my home. Okay. So what why did you finish? Was it in was it injury? No, no, no. They, even today I try to have a hamstring injury and when I go uh, to dance at night, when I return I try to sprint in to have a hamstring injury, but <laughs> I can't. <laughs> but no no, it's because uh, probably I, I was not good enough. That's the okay. truth. Okay. Okay. I can I, I, I can sympathise with that. I can sympathise with that. Um, so onto the onto the first question that we discussed before that I I'd love to get your opinion on. Just the the how do you see the current approach to hamstring injury rehab and prevention, and how would you say that there's room for improvement in this area? Okay, good question. Look, Rob, I think the the issue of hamstring injury. Definitely, definitely needs a new boost, a step forward. I think it has been an injury that, contrary to other types of injuries, such as ACL, it has been approached from a very analytical and isolated point of view. This influences both the evaluation methods and the intervention carried out. To give a clear and simple example, in the ACL injury, in sitting events, such as size cutting, jumps, were biomechanically analyzed to later analyze how the trunk, hip, ankle, or even anatomy could influence this incident event, providing a multifactorial approach to the problem. 
Consequently, prevention programs have been directed to correctly and repeatedly perform the movement related to the injury, like side cutting, etc. And never see a guy, I don't know if you see Rob, that only perform squats to prevent the ACL. But what happened in hamstrings? Look, Rob, everything was reduced to the action of the hamstring at a specific time of sprinting, the main injury mechanism. And from there, the measurement methods such as isokinetic, norbor, and, preven and prevention training were arrested. It has been focused at that concrete moment without going too deep into how the trunk, pelvis, the other leg interaction influenced that moment. And surprisingly, that was extrapolated to the preventive method in which instead of starting from the correct improvement and repetition of the injury mechanisms, as in the ACL, in hamstring injuries, most of the research has focused on improving the specific strength or isolated strength of the knee flexure or knowing which exercise activates more one hamstring muscle or the other. But what happened about the injury mechanism movement and patterns? If we go to the literature, we can see the huge difference between the artic articles dedicated to Nordic hamstring and sprint, at least in the injury-related area. Therefore, was the prevention scheme proposed by, by McLean equally applied in the two pathologies? Maybe an interpretation problem? With this, Rob, I don't, I don't want to give rise to misunderstandings. I'm not against the Nordic or the eccentric work that I even researched and analyzed it. Therefore, it's a critic for myself too. But I wonder myself, today, look, it has been more than 80 years of the first study in the AFL carried out by the group of uh, Uwe Proske, David Morgan, Camilla Brockett, that suggested eccentric training effectiveness in reducing this type of injury. Then, it's not a new thing. We did uh, 20 years ago. Even when I played, we did eccentrics. All the football teams that I know do eccentrics weekly, actually, at least in the minor leagues. And what is still the biggest injury proven today? Hamstrings. We can shield ourselves in that the velocity and intensity of the game has increased, but then maybe eccentric are not effective enough, enough to battle against actual player demands, right? We cannot ignore, ignore what is happening and continue not listening to the concerns of our college, of the teens frustrated and under pressure because they continue with the same injuries, amount of injuries, despite using eccentric exercises. They don't lie and are worried about hamstring because what has been suggested does not solve at least entirely the problem. Rob. This is the reflection I make about hamstring injuries, and that's what I think that without criticizing what we have done in the past, we need for sure something else. And that is what uh, we are preparing and working on, but it is very hard work. Because if we assume that, look, that now we agree on that, that it's a multifactorial injury, and that the factors interact with each other, the current force or range of motion measurements and isolated measurements are not able to show us these associations. Therefore, everything goes through the development of new contextualized screens that allow us to decipher the primary factors to correct. And, we, we talk, and when we talk about contextualized, we talk in reference to the main injury mechanism that is not other than a sprint. And of course, it's not the only one injury mechanism, because there are injury mechanisms related to overstretching, trunk perturbation, etc. And that's what, uh, together with Johan Lati and JB Morins from, from Nice and the rest of the group are trying to do it and show. In resume, we are trying to validate and show how I assess each individual high elite player in my current practice and what kind of program prescribed according to a multifactorial contextualized screening that takes in account factor interaction and sprint, sprinting as a main injury mechanism. Finally, in addition to that, if we wanted to be more close to succeed, 
to succeed from a prevention perspective, at least in football, in my opinion, we need to perfectly know our sport demands and derived adaptations and our player adaptation to coach methods or training. This is how we achieve the best results in the WOFA survey. Okay? But maybe, of course, and uh, Futur will say, maybe I am wrong. Could you explain, if possible, um, maybe in simple-ish simple -ish terms, the role of the trunk and the pelvis when it comes to hamstring injuries, Jordan? Well, it has been shown by uh, Showermans uh, that um, anterior pelvic tilt uh, as a risk factor for hamstring injury. And if we only base it Theoretically, in uh, elemental anatomy, we know that uh, we know that uh, hamstring attach to the pelvis, to this tuberosity, and then an increase on, on, on anterior pelvic tilt will increase uh, hamstring length. There are much more indirect things saying that it uh, could be a, a a risk factor, an important structure to, to look at. For example, uh, I read a lot in, uh, about cerebral palsy patients that uh, they have, they have uh, normally uh, big uh, hamstring contractors, and uh, sometimes these uh, contractors need to uh, go to surgery. Look, when they were cutted, from the medial hamstrings, semitendinosus, uh, they are not changed at the at the pelvic side, but when they have an incision from the biceps femoris, of course, uh, it has been shown that there is a moving, movement of the pelvis. If we go more in deep, uh, we have been shown uh, by functional MRI, we um, are earlier studies by, by a Japanese college, uh, like Higashihara um, uh, and, and Ono, that increases uh, trunk flexion or hip flexion, uh, increases uh, biceps femoris uh, signal intensity. And uh, this Japanese group, too, have proved and showed that uh, when you sprint with an inclined trunk, there is more biceps femoris lengthening uh, mostly at the beginning of the acceleration phase. Then, I'm looking for the moments. You know that probably um, hip moments are double from the hip than, than the knee. It looks like pelvis and trunk uh, have a relationship with the with the hamstring injury. But important too, it has been shown in, in some dorm. Uh, studies that one leg interact with the other and that's necessary to to perform and to 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 sprint faster the same has been shown by Nagahara and college uh, and then in my mind the only way to connect these both legs and the only joint that connects these two legs is the pelvis. And it has been shown that faster, to run faster, you need, uh, you need a deep anterior pelvic tilt. That's necessary. But the mismatch could be that could be good to run, to run fast, like track and field athletes like soccer, because only uh, playing soccer, that's what, that's what I call the adaptation that we have to know the adaptation. But look, if you play soccer, you increase your anterior pelvic tilt. Okay, and mm -hmm. uh, same with the with the with the track and field athletes. If we compare with rowing, if we compare with uh, with judo, etc. And uh, then that mismatch occur can be good to running fast, but if you go too far, can be dangerous for from injury perspective. So why why do you think there's been such a focus on 
knee flexor strength? Is that just because we've got easy methods to measure it rather than looking at the multifactorial, other multifactorial issues uh, around sprinting? I don't know. Uh, yeah, the, the, the thinking process is not bad uh, because it was hypothesized, hypothesized that uh, late swing phase is where, where injury uh, probably happened. Then it's true that is the the moment where hamstring uh, acts as a as a absorber, just uh, doing a negative work in order to prevent uh, the tibia going away. And then yes, we focus on that. But look, uh, and and it's good. And probably generally speaking, it's good. But just at the same time moment. The second anterior pelvic tilt happened. Ipsilateral max uh, gluteus max uh, force happened. Contralateral iliosoal lens happened. Then at the same happen, if you uh, look and you make a zoom of the entire movement or the entire situation, you can see all this happen concomitantly. Okay? Then I don't know why we only focus it on that. In fact, we see that there is no relationship between isolated testing and mechanical properties of a sprinting. Then there is no relationship, and and that uh, sounds uh, makes sense for me to me because just the function of the hamstring of the biarticular muscle that you can um, you can go uh, to. To the literature and um, and see uh, papers like uh, uh, wrote by Baningeneskino, Bobart, very very nice and great biomechanists. You can see that the the function of the muscle the, of this biarticular muscle is totally different that uh, that uh, what we are doing when um, when testing uh, uh, initialization. In fact, it has been shown that when you compare a football player cross-sectional area of the quads and hammies with a uh, with a guy that is not playing, just the quads, cross-sectional area, are equal, but the hamstring are greater. But when you normalize with knee extension or knee flexor strength, when you normalize this, this uh, knee flexor normalization strength is less in football players. That's probably because we are not uh, uh, testing how this uh, uh, group of muscle are functioning during a sprinting, because we know that they are they have greater uh, cross-sectional area. That means that probably they are stronger, and this happened, of course, in football players, in in track and track and field athletes, especially sprinters. But when you normalize measuring knee flexure. Uh, during a isokinetic movement, eccentric isokinetic uh, assessment, just you have less hamstring strength comparing to people that uh, don't uh, perform or don't do football. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes that makes sense. So, so moving on to the the second thing that we want, I want to chat to you about, and that was given the fact that you do work directly with individual players and teams, and you mentioned some in your little introduction at the start, what prevention methods would you use in a, in a football club if you were to be working full-time? It'd be like sprinting versus Nordic conversation. <laughs> Good question, Rob. But sorry about that. I think that this dichotomy of a sprint versus Nordic, that it's very trendy actually, is totally wrong and also dangerous. And I will explain why. Look, recently came to visit me one of uh, his athletes, uh, one of the Jonas Dudu athletes. Uh, Jonas Dudu, I don't know if you know Jonas Dudu. Is uh, yep, yep. Uh, been, been on the podcast before. Yep. Okay, <laughs> okay so coach yeah. uh, leading a high elite sprinting group. And look, he told me when he. He came with a, when he came with a, with the athlete. He told me that in order to improve performance, we did sub ten uh, elite sprinter. 
he had considered increasing the strain length. And this is one of the things that he mentioned to me before I start screening. When I started screening, I noticed that the boy was not structurally prepared for the task that his coach demanded. Therefore, if his structure was not prepared to run in that way, he can already have all the strengths of, of the world that if you didn't correct his structural issues, sprinting in that new way, in that new way with a greater or bigger straight length, for him, it was harmful. In summary, Rob, I'm caution with trendy uh, sprinting nowadays. Sprinting is not the new recipe, neither. If the player is not prepared to run properly or does it wrong in terms of shape or volume, the sprint will become counterproductive 100%. In fact, it looks that the sprinting is the new Nordic. If you hear football strength and conditioning and features right now, uh, they will tell you that you are all school if your players don't sprint. And again, I think that that's not the right way to think. On the contrary, Rob, if, if from your screening methods or assessments, you interpret that the cause of your player's injury is a decreasing strength, either from the hip or knee, the prescription of a work of strength in the gym will be adequate, for sure. Okay? But, therefore, the answer to your question, Rob, is almost always, it depends. And don't apply nothing as a recipe or established protocol. Look what you are, uh, lo no, sorry, look what your athlete or, or player need. Because if not, as many people do, we can treat people by email or even Twitter without seeing the patient. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Jordan. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss fascicle lengths and eccentric versus isometric exercises and how that fits in with the injury prevention model um, relating, to, uh, relating to hamstring injuries and the actions that go on during sprinting, during running. So really interesting part two coming up with Jordan. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kangatech. So born out of 10 years of research and development, Kangatech is the world's most advanced injury prevention platform. So most recently, Kangatech has released its KT360 testing and training platform, which consists of a portable and adaptable, easy to use fixed frame dynamometry system that allows accurate and reliable measurement of isolated neuromuscular strength, endurance and control. Advanced software analytics allow sport-specific athlete profiling to understand injury risk and guide prescription of appropriate intervention. Kangatech has developed over 35 isometric and eccentric testing and training protocols spanned across the whole body. With KT360, you can test one muscle group bilaterally, and that can be done in under 30 seconds with real-time biofeedback and immediate automated reporting designed to motivate the athlete and inform staff of outcomes instantaneously. To find out more about Kangatech, email how at kangatech.com, visit the website at kangatech.com, or check them out on Twitter at kanga underscore tech. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They are also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website omegawave.com or visit their social media channels. So just moving on a little bit to, um, again, carrying on with the, the, the Nordic theme, but looking at the architectural changes that happen um, due to people who 
um, take part in Nordic exercise. What's your opinion on that when it relates, how it relates to hamstring injury? Yes, as I mentioned earlier, consistently the eccentric world, mostly the Nordic, that has been used for more than 20 years, has shown positive results, and it has shown by authors like Proske, Carl Askren, Arnie Aronson, Peterson, Nick Vandenhorst, uh, and more in relation to hamstring injury prevention. And I think the data support is as reflected by a systematic review and meta-analysis recently conducted by Nicole Van Dijk. Therefore, we can say that as a general measure, it seems that it turned out to be an advance in its day. But I wonder right now is if the advance was enough attending to the training methodology used by most of the teams that contain eccentric work in, in their program and looking for the current epidemiology data showing no injury reduction. And I wonder too, if a single exercise satisfied the individual and multifactorial needs of the individual and the pathology. Another thing related to your question is the reason why the eccentric and Nordic exercise in particular is effective because consistently too, it has also not been proven prediction abilities between eccentric strength level and injuries. You can consult studies from Nicole Van Dijk or, or Tony Shield Group that using uh, uh, much of the learning, uh, they not proved any prediction ability between uh, strength levels and injuries. But it's true that inherent to eccentric training, increasing optimal length, alterations at aponeurosis level after training, at least in vascular lateralist, change at extracellular matrix uh, with increasing collagen type 4, 12, etc. Modification of architectural GL ratio, amniotendinous junction, change at a, a tightening protein isoform, and increasing the uh, tendon extenders and ratio of motion between, us, between others were documented. But it's true that lately, much attention has been paid to fascicle ends as a possible projection mechanism that explains the positive effect of the Nordics with respect to hamstring injuries. It has been uh, suggested as a risk factor, even as a risk factor in football, despite having a low association. Theoretically, the idea is based on a hypothetical increase in sarcomerogenesis after eccentric work that would be reduced fascicle length in a future dynamic contraction and therefore decrease, decrease the risk of muscle damage and injury. However, Rob, uh, although theoretically supported, I think that today and with the technique and knowledge we have, it is hardly to, hardly to demonstrate the association between fascicle and hamstring injury. One, because there are technical limitations on fascicle measurement where fascicles, aponeurosis, curvature were estimated due to proof size, etc. We know too that hamstring muscle architecture changes along the muscle, and only one region is measured in this in this uh, uh, measurement methods. And moreover, uh, the measure is static. Then, Rob, we are assuming that what we are measuring statically will happen dynamically without considering muscle tendon in the interaction and behavior. Muscle shape change during contraction, that it has been shown that change contraction to contraction, etc. Then we are assuming what we are seeing statically and not consider all the elements like tendon, aponeurosis, etc. We are assuming what will happen dynamically. Look, recently Martino Franke showed that some estimation techniques are more accurate than others just measuring uh, fascicle lengths. And considering more advanced technique, technique always related or comparing with more advanced techniques like uh, extended field of view methods or panoramic images. But again, Rob are static and we are assuming what will happen dynamically. Look, we have results coming soon with my friends uh, Antonio Morales Artacho and, Gai, and Gael Guilherme at INSET Gal, great mass physiologists, uh, and using the more advanced uh, existed uh, techniques, both static and dynamically, and we saw that after eccentric intervention, uh, compared with control, 
groups we don't find difference not statically and using extended field of view uh, methods that Martino Resenich uh, say that were were better and uh, you said I was uh, before that you 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 call me I was just uh, speaking with with Antonio and say me that you're finishing the dynamic uh, the dynamic uh, evaluation of uh, fascicles pre and post eccentric inversion and control and looks even that the technique is very challenging that there are not uh, there are not uh, changes but uh, we need to to do the final stati statistical analysis well this will uh, coming soon but another point and a second point is that assuming the addition of sarcomeres in serie in humans after eccentric exercise in order to protect muscle from damage is challenging too in humans one or maximum two studies from lever group show it but only after major surgeries like thermal lengthening uh, surgeries okay and in the unique study conducted uh, after eccentric bout by Glenn Nichuar group, show it in the first human experiment, measuring fascicle tension rather than joint angle torque, they show it that protection from a repeated bout of eccentric exercise at one week was conferred without change in, massive, in muscle fascicle strains and suggested connective tissue structures or extracellular matrix remodeling as a cause of the protective effect. Okay, if we go to the gastrocnemius, Duclay didn't show any change, both statically and neither uh, dynamically. And if you go to works from Berghausen, Amelie Berghausen, or uh, Irayama, uh, a Japanese group, didn't show any fascicle and chains. To finish, according to Tony Blasevich, studies and models, Static architectural changes has little influence on muscle function in vivo in humans. Maybe a problem again of measurement accuracy. Then we have to continue searching, but we can't say uh, or assume what is happening. Okay? And finally, and even with less value, one of the little teams that I know that use a fascicle measurement in football in the past didn't obtain any association. And similarly, uh, uh, told me Craig Purdan, well, where he did not get any uh, association in AFL in the things that uh, uh, he consulted. Okay. Uh, look, Rob, I love mass officially and authors like uh, Assisi, Herzog, Fukutani. And there are some measurements like architectural GR ratio that really relate mass and length in respect to fascicle length that has been shown to change as the muscle shape change and that is related to dynamic penetration angle that through fascicle rotation can decrease the fascicle length and increasing architectural geo ratio especially in hemipenial muscle like biceps femoris during during eccentric contraction then in hemipenial muscle even that has been shown like the devil penetration angle increases can increase architectural geo ratio and protect the fascicle lens, the fascicle to from lengthening. Okay. And there is another uh, architectural parameter of interest that can be tendon stiffness. Look, telling et al using a modeling show that an increasing tendon compliance during a sprinting results in a decreasing muscle or myotendinous junction lens. Related to that, Butterfield 2 showed that a fatigue-provoked protocol after stress shortening cycles decreased tendon compliance and increased fascicle length. And this can be related to with different roles of tendon being compli compliant at low loads or velocities, but acting as a acting as a force transducers, stiffening structures at high loads and speeds. And nobody, as far as I know, analyzed that after an eccentric intervention, but uh, would be great. So in in terms of the research that is out there at the minute in, that, that looks at the association between fascicle lengths and hamstring injury, should coaches be a little bit cautious when looking at, at that, that what's out there at the minute and maybe wait a little bit before making some solid conclusions? 
Yeah, uh, I think so. Due to technical uh, limitations and the knowledge that we have and looking for uh, uh, the limitation of the measurements, I think that uh, we have to be cautious at least. And, uh, and I, I, I did all this explanation why I think that uh, we are far from uh, from um, from uh, how you call that in English uh, ensure that uh, these measurements are related to to hamstring injuries. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, there's a few more things that I want to touch on, so we'll just move on. Um, in terms of hamstring injuries and activation, and activation is a big thing that you'll see uh, that probably bundles a lot of exercises and and uh, and thoughts under one umbrella and it's something you'll see before training on probably every football training ground across the world uh in professional professional football but what is this can it have a potential role as a risk factor for hamstring injury well that's a difficult one rap uh look if we look prospectively i remember uh nicole bandaka's study that found no associations prospectively between ones of muscle activity and hamstring injury during isokinetic measurement. But in contrast, showermans prospectively too, during a prone hip extensor extension maneuver, found a delayed hamstring recruitment of hamstring compared to erectors. In those priors that after suffered an injury, with no difference at EMG amplitude at all. The same actor, Sauermann et al. from Belgium, uh, showed association between decreased EMG of gluteus and drug muscles and hamstring injury. In a prospective study too, with football players uh, sprinting overground. But in terms of hamstring activity, no association between the EMG, time series of the biceps femoris, and or medial hamstring and the occurrence of injury during follow-up was found. Controversy exists if we look and compare injured versus non-injured, with some studies showing differences and others not. But they use different techniques, such as functional MRI or EMG, that are difficult to compare because the, the physiological processes behind are totally uh, different. And both using isokinetic during a, a Nordic or just using isokinetic or during a Nordic exercise, or even going, going from two legs standing to one leg. There are two studies analyzing EMG activities during treatment and sprinting, and one from uh, Amy Schilder didn't find difference between injured and non-injured injured muscle activities, but Dali from UK found, uh, found decreased EMG biases activation compared to the, to the non-injured side. More recently, too, uh, during overgrowing sprinting, Igashihara showed reduced EMG activity of biceps femoris compared to uninjurably. But it's true that only analyzed one concrete gait cycle. Then it looks that could be something, Rob, but we know at this point that uh, EMG uh, has limitations, like it neglects of regional hamstring activation, it has high uh, variability, and there is an inhibition during eccentric contraction, uh, and we have to account to front for the cross tags. But look, more lately and recently, and in my opinion, doing a great technical and scientific effort, Simon Abrigion uh, from INSEP or from Paris, that I met in INSEP, I, I don't know if it's from INSEP or not, mm -hmm. but uh, concretely enhancing muscles showed that both the distribution of activation and the distribution of torque generating capacities varied greatly between individuals and in as maximal knee flexor tax on an isokinetic dynamometer. Moreover, significant negative correlation was observed between the imbalance of activation on the enhancing muscle and the time to exhaustion that was used contrary to Showerman results using functional MRI, where more symmetrical MRI signal intensity after leg curl was associated to lower endurance capabilities during leg curl in injured subjects. This individual variability is not initialization, and were confirmed in other muscles groups by Francois Hu, the leader of, of, group, of the group of uh, Simone Afrigion. Okay, 
uh, I think that the group was from Nantes, where Franza who is. Okay. Look, then, more related to Hamsing and supported this idea and using high density MG, recently Handras AG confirmed that regional and intermuscular EMG patterns were highly individual, but each individual maintained similar proximal distance and intermuscular EMG activity patterns across different running speeds. Then confirms the idea that activation sequence and patterns are very, very individual. And then that made me questions, uh, yeah, make me uh, wondering questions like, if the hamstring activation patterns are so individual, Rob, is there a gold standard? How much can we rely on previous conducted studies knowing the variability between people? Or it will, be, it will be necessary to change the pattern of activation after the injury? If we say that it's very highly individually, individual? Or finally, it will be as easy to change the activation pattern during running as, pres as prescribed a hip dominant or dominant exercise as has been published? With this, I do not, I don't mean that the activation patterns are not related to hamstring injury, but we have to question things and that we have to move further in this field to be able to give more rigorous advices or opinions. Okay? So for, for coaches out there who are interested in the role of activation, is that something that they should be kind of digging deeper or is that something that we should be waiting for research to, to kind of help coaches guide their practice? Yeah. For me, simple things like, oh, he has uh, a lower uh, EMG biceps activation. We need to increase or not, or gluteus. Be careful, or he activates more uh, biceps than semitendinous. It's not as easy. As I told you, it's very, very individual. And there is not like a gold standard pattern. Then, of course, we have to wait to these uh, this, uh, great groups like, uh, like the group from Nantes uh, and Francois Huyck and Simon Abrion uh, studies uh, and wait for from their findings to give more uh, rigorous uh, advices. But we don't know if it's good or not change the patterns uh, we have in this injured uh, athlete. Mm -hmm. I understand. So, a couple of more questions that I want to get across to you before we um, before I let you get on with your Sunday. And this was one thing that's come up in a couple of different podcasts that I've a couple of different episodes that I've done, and that was around how the hamstring acts, whether either isometrically or eccentrically. Um, during certain phases of, of sprinting. And I'd love to get your opinion on how that conversation could potentially impact um, the training of the hamstrings, depending on whether it's isometric, isometrically or eccentrically. Yeah, Rob, I know that there is a debate about the isometric or eccentric behavior of the fiber at the time of the injury. At uh, what it looks clear that towards the end of the swing phase in sprinting, the hamstring muscle tendon unit lengths and the hamstring forces increase. But what about the muscle fascicle or fibers? Do they increase because of muscle is stretching or decrease because of the force and activation increase? I don't think that anybody knows for sure right now. And by, based on sonic micrometry studies, uh, in other muscles like gastronomic, doesn't look that will change too much. But even that, for us, it is a sterile levite. Basic, basically, Rob, for two reasons. The first one, because both visions share the idea of the inability of fibers to withstand the mechanical forces imposed to finally get injured. And knowing that in animals, the degree and location of a strain suffered by the muscle corresponds to the site of rupture seems to us equal or more important than having a strong and super strong and resistant fiber. The, no, the reason why this area presents more strain 
Like for example, it has been shown that contralateral hip flexor induce 20 millimeters of strain at uh, at strength. Then, if we don't remove this cause, like this contralateral hip flexor shortening, we will continue suffering more strain in that part of the fiber. Okay? And second, look, if you want to reproduce the injury mechanism and produce same behavior and same uh, adaptation to the uh, myotendinous junction, tendon, and fascicle, don't doubt between isometric, eccentric, concentric. Simply run, and you will have the same. But look, another thing that for me it's much more relevant is a, than apply isometric or eccentric exercise. And more important than that, than the type of con contraction, sorry, is the time or, or velocity of contraction depending on the effect that we want to create at both muscle, tendon, or myotendinous junction. We will choose different pa uh, uh, parameters of time, increasing the, the contraction time or velocity, depending if we want to reduce or create a stiffness and so on. And sometimes there is a, in the athletes a mismatch between performance and injury. With a more stiff structure, that is good to performance, but maybe not as good from the injury perspective. Okay? Then that's what I think that it's important. Control these time or velocity parameters that will induce different effects on the, on the different structures. Cool. So coming up to my last question, and I'm, I'm coming to the limit on my time, given that it's a Sunday afternoon. But um, you've been, it's been great to chat to you, Jordan, but I know you're a super busy man. You've been very busy over the last couple of weeks, couple of months, and I really do appreciate you coming on and giving up your time because you are a busy man. But is there anything that you can say in terms of the work that you're doing that may be coming in the future that you can give us a bit of an insight into right here, right now? Yeah, uh, some of them I told you before, but as I told you, we are mainly focusing and putting all of our energies on developing new screenings that adapt to the multifactorial character, the dynamic interaction of the factors, the individuality of the athlete, and all related to the main injury mechanism. And this requires a huge job that only the future will say if we, if we will produce a change in hamstring injury approach and prevention. There is another great project, project of which we already have data, uh, where we set out uh, from an intervention to see if we are able to reduce hamstring length during sprinting, the main injury mechanism. That is to change the way or posture of running to decrease hamstring elongation or length. Rob, for the first time, at least at, as, as a, at a scientific level, I can tell you that we can modify chronically the posture and change running technique, and therefore uh, reduce hamstring elevation. Analyzing with 3D kinematic at maximum spin phase, okay? It was performed in one of the best motion analysis labs that I know, that is Camera Center at Batu University, and collaborating with a wonderful colleagues like uh, Steffi Kohler, Collier, or Adrian Castaño, Pedro Jimenez, and so on. Uh, and look, it seems that this change of running technique don't affect performance. And it brings the, the joints to, to better positions to position that has been shown in the literature but uh, Professor Weyan and uh, Neil Bethodis uh, to a position that are able to produce more forces and improve performance. Then it looks a very, very big uh, finland because we can, for the first time, uh, change technique and at the same time at least maintain on or uh, get some position close to the best position that, uh, that uh, were shown in the literature from the performance perspective. 
just uh, this week too, uh, we uh, finished the analysis of a nice prospective study, study with nice number of players and injuries. Uh, with Pascal Edouard, Dr. Pascal Edouard leading the project, where the association between running mechanics and hamstring injury were analyzed. And very, very interesting data are coming in, in this area relating use horizontal um, forces and uh, hamstring injuries. As I told you before, uh, I'm uh, collaborating with the INSEP in Paris with people like uh, Gael Guillaume and Antonio Morales Artacho, and we have new data regarding both static and, the, and dynamic fascicle lens, and passive stimulus to uh, measure it with elastography after eight weeks of eccentric intervention and compare it uh, with uh, control, different eccentric interventions. You see, in process two, we have a new training intervention, um, very new training, in order with the goal to improve negative work and energy absorption uh, capabilities of hamstring muscles. Different to what was used until now, and based on first experiments by Garrett et al. that showed that more energy absorption before uh, rupture can reduce injury risks, and based too in, in the energy management theory of Chapman and Caldwell that considered that speed is limited by the ability of the knee flexor to reduce the kinetic energy of the lower limb while they lengthen in late swing flex. Okay? Then we are developing a new uh, uh, training uh, intervention and we will see what happened, but uh, it looks very well and very contextualized. Okay? And this is more or less what uh, will come in, that I think that that is hard. It's not hard to say, but it's hard to, to work on it. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of work, Jordan. It, no doubt no, um, no doubt you've been super busy, and you will be super busy, because that, that sounds a lot. No wonder it's taken a couple of weeks to line up. But um, if, if anyone's got any questions based off anything that you've said, because there's been so much information there, what is the best form of communication for people to get in touch? Or where can they go for further information on some of your work? Yeah, of course, they can contact me by email. I always try to, to answer all, all the questions. But uh, yeah, you go. You can go to, to our group uh, our group uh, articles or or scientific articles. You can uh, have access to JB Morin uh, blogs too, uh, where there is a lot of info related to what we are doing. Uh, I'm not uh, a social media guy, but uh, for example, from our group, JB is quite active. Uh, Johan Lati too, and follow them. Following them, you you can have some info too. Perfect. And I just want to say a big thanks to JB for making an introduction because, um, yeah, that made a real help to be able to get you on. So big thanks to JB. And thank you very much to you, Jordan, because I know it's I know it's hard, super hard to um, to come on and speak in a different language. And I have so much respect that people for people that do, because um, I could not I could certainly not do this in Spanish. So thank you for doing it in English. Okay, thanks Rob to you and sorry all the listeners because of my English, but I, I tried my best and uh, I'm sure that I will improve my English uh, not, uh, not uh, too far. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And I'll try to improve my Spanish as well. <laughs> okay. Thank you. That's good. Thank Rob. you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 266 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and also thank you for Jordan for giving up his Sunday evening to come on and have a chat and talk all things hamstring injuries and injury prevention. Also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU, to Omega Wave and also to Kangatech for sponsoring this episode today. So I hope you got loads from this episode. Got some really good guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, so continue to tune in every week um, for your latest weekly dose of sports performance on this podcast. So thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you very much for your support, and I will chat to you next week.